Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. This hour, why is the Census Bureau testing a citizenship question after federal courts ruled it can't be asked in the 2020 headcount? Before an Atlanta audience of national conservative leaders, Vice President Pence lays out the case for Donald Trump's re-election. And anger builds in the northern suburbs over a plant residents fear is spewing cancer-causing chemicals. We have a lot to talk about on today's show. Let's get going and meet today's panel. Of course, it's a day for Jim Galloway to uh, be here as my sidekick on the show, the lead political uh, writer for the AJC. You read him on Wednesdays and Sundays in the Dead Tree edition of the AJC. And you continue to oversee the Political Insider blog at AJC.com. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's good to have you here. Across from you, um, Michael Thurman. Michael, of course, is currently the CEO of DeKalb County, but he's been in just about every job in elected office. And he was uh, uh, the labor commissioner for the state yes. of Georgia. He was superintendent of schools in uh, DeKalb County at a time when he really had to write that ship. Uh, you were a candidate for United States Senate in the 2010 race. And who knows what your political future might be, Mr. Thurmond? Would you like to talk about it today? Honored to be with you, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> Always a joy. It's good to have you here, Mike Thurmond. Jackie Gingrich Cushman is uh, back with us. She's had a busy summer with children, and we haven't had you on as much as we like to. Jackie, of course, is a conservative writer, blogger. And we are proud to be able to say, Jackie, that you are going about to be a published book. Well, you've written several books, so that, so that was an unfair thing to say. But you have a brand new one coming out next month. I do. I have a brand new book um, coming out September 17th. What's it called? Our Broken America, Why Both Sides Need to Stop Ranting and Start Listening. And uh, let me let me guess. You know, who's, wait, wait. Who's writing, who's writing wait. the foreword? Yeah, we do have to <laughs> Wait a minute. This is a book. Stop ranting and start start what? Listening. Okay. And that's why. And, 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 and her dad, Newt, wrote Absolutely. <laughs> I actually, I actually, just, I actually discussed that in the book. So, you know, if it causes a little interest in conversation, that's even better. But I think it's really important for us at this time in our nation's history to really learn to listen to each other and not just scream at each other. Well, Amen uh, to that. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, and you and I are scheduled next month to, to sit down and, and do a show specifically about all of the ideas that you talk about in your book, and I'm really looking forward to that. So congratulations so on yet another uh, new book, Jackie. Thank you. Um, and we're also uh, really happy to uh, welcome to today's show Hansi Lowang, who is the census correspondent, reporter for National Public Radio. You said based in New York. That's right. And you're here for the Asian American, the Conference of Asian American Journalists, right? Right, the Asian American Journalists Association uh, annual meeting. And I'll be speaking about the census there as well. Well, we're really thrilled to have you here because your reporting on the census uh, gives us some information that many of us did not know before. And you can help us uh, with a perspective on where we're headed in this 2020 census. So let me ask you a first question and then everybody can get involved. One of the things that you've reported that Jim Galloway and I were struck by 
is that despite the fact that we followed the journey of the citizenship question in the courts, which which the Trump administration wanted to add, which the courts have absolutely said no to, despite all that, you reported, I think in the last week, that the Census Bureau is testing a citizenship question, and they're doing it a little late in the game, right? They, they do test questions, you tell us, but usually far in advance of the next census, and this suddenly pops up. Am I right? Right. The testing usually happens for new questions or any changes to a census form years before headcount starts because they want to really know how the public will react and whether or not changes should be made and how it could affect the results. Uh, but because the Trump administration made a really last minute push for this question, formally submitting a request at the end of 2017 uh, before the planned question topics had already been set, uh, the uh, Census Bureau was trying to figure out a way of how to get some type of data, some type of information to figure out whether or not um, it would need to hire more workers, uh, change its advertising campaign based on how the public would react to a citizenship question. And the plans were put in place before the courts made their final decision, before the Supreme Court made its decision. And the Census Bureau was trying to put it in place so that we'd have results in case the question was on and in case any future officials want to add this question for future census forms. I think you tell us that these test questions go out about half Half a million people or so was that? Do I have that right? And about half of those people got this census question. I mean, the citizenship question. Right. About a half million households randomly selected around the country to uh, ask to answer uh, questionnaires. Not everyone is getting a paper form. Most people are getting a letter with a link. Um, at this point, if they haven't filled out that form, uh, they're probably getting a paper form. And half of those forms, about a quarter million, include a citizenship question: Is this person a citizen of the United States? The other half does not. Jim, are, are they trying to are, yeah. are they trying to generate some statistics that 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 might uh, prove uh, uh, Tom Hoffeller's uh, kind of contention? He's the, he's the, he's the, the uh, North Carolina Republican uh, and 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 gerrymander strategist yeah. who 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 created uh, who, who who initiated this push for the citizenship question. Uh, for for state, various states, including Georgia, possibly to use. Right. The results of this specific test, and they're calling it the 2019 census test, have nothing to do with redistricting, nothing to do really with a population count. This is strictly to essentially gauge public reaction to specifically the citizenship question and to figure out how people respond, whether people don't respond. Yeah. So really it's a test to see whether or not asking the question has a different result in terms of comparison, right, in the, in the two. So one, one, one group gets it, one group does not get it. And is there a difference in terms of who responds? Is exactly. That about? And okay. it's, it's really measuring it's a response a rate. It's a pure test, right. It's a response rate test. So but it really has nothing to do, to your point, with the census or where we're going in terms of, you know, the count currently or what the next Right. It won't be is. part of the 2020 but census. It, I think it is good information for this. I'm not saying the timing, but I'm saying it's good information for them to have. Maybe they should have done it earlier in a different way. But I think it's good to know what does that question do. There's a lot of speculation and there have been other things that have been talked about. But to have that real data to say we've actually run a real test and hear it and we don't know the answer. So, I mean, we speculate right now what the answer would be. I think it's that information will be valuable. But, you know, Mike, of course, in, in, right now in the age of Trump, it, it, after even the courts, uh, all the courts ruled on this, the president still insisted we'll figure out a way to get this on the census, and then he dropped uh, that plan when he realized there really wasn't any way. So given all that, 
when you see uh, the reporting uh, that Hansi did here, you say to yourself, is there something going on that we need to worry about? And I think actually you interviewed at least one or two people who felt this, who were nervous about the same thing. Am I right? Right. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of confusion because not only is there a citizenship question on this 2019 census test, but there are other Census Bureau surveys right. uh, that the government conducts, including the American Community Survey. It's an ongoing survey, and that does have a citizenship question. It's had a citizenship question ever since that survey began in 2005, and that's actually the main vehicle of how the government collects citizenship data to enforce, for example, the Voting Rights Act. How do we make sure the voting rights of racial minorities are protected? It's through the citizenship data collected from that survey, but people Aren't, weren't aware of that. Uh, there's a lot more attention about what the Census Bureau does, specifically about citizenship uh, information, and so it's causing a lot of confusion and raising yeah. a lot of questions. Mike? Well, I think in a broader uh, context, what this as was just stated, uh, we're in a very toxic environment now where there's a high level of sensitivity around issues of immigration and citizenship. And on another plane, and I don't know specifically what the timing is, but I would ask the question, was this a face-saving effort for the president who, right. during the run-up and throughout this debate, insisted categorically that this question would be on the census? And whether intended or not, it presents an opportunity for face-saving in a political sense. I mean, I, I would guess to say he's he's moved on to the next thing. I mean, Trump, you know, when something doesn't work. Really? He moves on really fast. I don't know if y'all have noticed that or not. <laughs> I mean, you you got to remember, you got to remember, this is a, I try to tell people, this is a man who was a New York developer who became a reality TV star who then became our president. So when you think about how he acts and what he does, you can't think about a standard politician. You can't think about what would President Clinton have done or what would, you know, President, one of the President Bushes have done. This is a totally different person with a totally different background, with a totally different way of thinking. And so he probably doesn't remember, oh, my gosh, the Census Bureau. They have to have years to figure out these questions to make sure they're right to do it. I mean, he's used to breaking things and moving fast. And so he just, something doesn't work, he moves to the but, next but thing. But you know what's, the, the other thing in your reporting that I thought was interesting was you talk about the American Community Survey, which has been asking a, census, a citizenship mm -hmm. question since 2005. 2005. So if that's the case, doesn't it to some extent, although I know we're looking at back at, at something that's already been decided by the courts, but doesn't that raise even more questions about why the, administ about the administration's uh, excuse for why they wanted the citizenship question in the first place? Well, that is uh, what the challengers of the citizenship question, that's part of their argument in court, which was there already is uh, citizenship information yeah. that the government has used. And we have to remember back the Trump administration, uh, at least the stated reason it said that it wanted to add a citizenship question was to better enforce the Voting Rights okay. Act. Can I move on? Because I know we've only got you for a limited time before you have to go speak at the conference. Um, something you've been reporting on extensively is um, efforts to mobilize minority communities to respond to the census, partly more than ever because of what Mike Thurman discussed, which is um, suspicions among uh, minority communities, Hispanic communities, I would guess in particular, although you'll tell me if I'm wrong, 
and community organizations are out there making sure people respond to the survey, the, the census, right? Right. This is really uh, trying to fulfill a constitutional mandate. It's to count every person living in the country, regardless of citizenship status, regardless of immigration status. And those numbers determine how power and money are essentially distributed around the country over the next decade. So getting every person living in the country counted uh, is really a priority for a lot of immigrant rights groups, communities of color, because those are the groups that the Census Bureau describes as hard to count groups, that most of the public in the country, uh, a majority uh, white population, that population generally is actually been overcounted in past census counts. Uh, but the groups that have been undercounted are, are traditionally communities of color, immigrant communities, uh, communities who for English is not their first language. And so the special attention is being made uh, by the Census Bureau through advertising campaign and partnering with local community groups, including one that I shadowed in Queens, New York, uh, Make Throat New York. They were one of the plaintiffs in the citizenship question lawsuit. Now they're kind of shifting their focus now to making sure that immigrant communities in New York know about the census, know why it's important, and uh, try to assuage any fears and concerns about handing over personal information to the, the government. The, there's also a, a, an emphasis on, on counting children under five, is there not now? Yes, one of the uh, most undercounted groups are children under five, and a lot of different reasons for that, and partly because the families are a lot more complex now, and so uh, young children uh, could be left out because they may be living in multiple mm -hmm. households, or folks might not know that children should be counted in the census. Um, and so the Census Bureau is trying to um, encourage uh, families to make sure that young children under five are counted. And as a local elected official, Bill, literally hundreds of millions of dollars are hanging in mm -hmm. the balance in terms of federal appropriations uh, to local and state governments yeah. to serve and support various populations. Uh, having served in the school district, one of the things that surprises most people is there's no citizenship test in terms of providing public education to children. You cannot inquire as to the citizenship status of a child or a parent if they present themselves uh, at a schoolhouse door. You must provide them with education. So you've got to have funds. Yes. So they've got to be counted so that money uh, for your school, what, whatever uh, funding is coming your yeah, way, yes. takes them into account. And typically mm -hmm. children who speak English as a second language, that presents a mm -hmm. greater challenge. That's why the funding is so necessary. Oh, absolutely. I mean, everyone should be counted. And I think one of the things I learned in your reporting was that the Census Bureau actually can't share information about citizenship status. Is that correct? And if so, like for 72 years, or what's the, what is the regulation around what information can be shared? So the protections are under Title 13 of the U.S. Code, and specifically the Census Bureau cannot share responses identifying individuals, whether they be about citizenship, uh, which the 2020 Census will not be collecting information about uh, through the questionnaire, but uh, race, ethnicity, uh, people's ages, for example. Information identifying individuals cannot be shared until 72 years after that information is collected. If you've done any genealogy research into your family <laughs> tree, uh, you may have seen old census records, but you have to wait 72 years before you can actually see uh, <laughs> your great-grandparents' uh, name, for example, exactly where they lived, who they lived with. Right. But in general, the Census Bureau can release information, anonymized information about specific demographic groups at a level as local as a local neighborhood. Right. Um, and that is released uh, regularly, and that's what redistricting officials use in part to draw new voting maps. But also helps, and to your point, if you have all the, the children under five and you know who's coming up in your schools, yes. you can plan properly to know Absolutely. in three years how many people you're going to have to have in elementary school. But I think it's really important that people understand that, that everyone should be counted because because there is no one going to track them down personally. And I think, uh, quite frankly, part of the, I think um, the 
the sadness about this ongoing discussion is that a lot of people have gotten misinformation and have become scared for reasons that they shouldn't be scared. And so hopefully people will go out and make sure that they are counted in the census because it is really important. Jim, please help me if I don't walk you through this properly. But I think when we've talked census before, you've um, made the point that it's one thing to count every individual regardless of their status in this country and understand that, that federal funds are going to be distributed on that basis. It's another thing to look at um, how they figure into um, redistricting, congressional right. redistricting, if they're not voters. Um, and, and, and so there's kind of a, a parallel track there. And yet those figures are used to determine whether we add or lose a member of Congress, for instance, electoral college right. votes for a state, right? Right, right, right. Uh, what opponents of the citizenship question were, 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 were alleging is that this is basically, uh, this was a Republican effort to build a database that state governments could use. Not, 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 uh, not, this would not apply to federal redistricting, but state governments could use citizenship counts as a basis for their own redistricting. Uh, legislative, not congressional. Legislative, gotcha. school board, county commission, gotcha. c city council. That was, that was, that was, the, that was the kind of the, 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 and the genesis of that was, was Tom Hoffeller. Hansi, can you weigh in on that? Sure, this is uh, Thomas Hoffler, a GOP redistricting strategist. He died uh, in August, last August, and his hard drive surfaced as part of these uh, lawsuits over the citizenship question. And one of these documents that were part of, of these hard drives included an unpublished study where he said that if uh, voting districts were drawn based on not the total residents uh, of a given area, but on uh, only citizens old enough to vote, eligible right. voters, that would produce uh, essentially political maps that would be, quote, advantageous to Republicans. Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. And it's important to point out that even though the Trump administration is no longer pushing for a citizenship question on the 2020 census, that it is still moving forward with another way of getting the citizenship, citizenship information that uh, Thomas Hoffler uh, outlined said is necessary in order to do this, uh, this strategy. And this is through existing government records from right. other federal agencies, including the Social Security Administration, Department of Homeland Security, and the State Department. Those are records that actually last year, the Trump administration authorized the Census Bureau to to start collecting, compiling, and now uh, the Census Bureau has formal uh, instructions to prepare that information to release to redistricting officials uh, in 2021. Uh, before we take a break, uh, and before we have to uh, say goodbye to Hansi, Mike, uh, he talked about organizations across the country that are working to ensure uh, people respond to the census. What, what kind of efforts are underway in DeKalb County? A significant effort is underway uh, being led by uh, our Commissioner Larry Johnson. We recognize the importance, particularly in a county uh, such as DeKalb, where we have a large immigrant population uh, within our jurisdiction. It is extremely important for DeKalb and Atlanta is doing the same uh, because we know the, the, the significance of undercounting uh, people of color. And it's redistricting, too. Uh, you all have been through the process in the Georgia General Assembly as a reporter, and Jim both, and me as a uh, legislator. There's nothing uh, more intense and with so much at stake than reapportionment, and particularly on a state like Georgia that is undergoing a major transition. Mm -hmm. Five, 10,000 residents in a specific part of the state can literally shift control of a house or a Senate, yeah. or a commission, right. or a school board. All right. Um, Hansi Lowang, we're really grateful uh, uh, that you stopped in for a few minutes to talk with us about your beat. Um, 
people can read your stories, listen to your stories on the NPR website, obviously. Uh, is there a specific NPR.org, but is there a slash that they can go to to get to you specifically? I can't think of it off okay. the top of my head. But <laughs> I am on Twitter. I tweet a lot by the census. Oh, you do? Yes. Okay, what's your Twitter handle? Hansi Luong. All right, fine. Thank you. Thanks for joining us. Thank Have you for a good time me. over at the uh, conference, Thank and um, we'll be listening for your report. Thank you very much. Uh, Vice President Pence, Hansi's not the only guy in town today. The Vice President of the United States is here. <laughs> he spoke over at Eric Erickson's gathering of conservatives. We're going to uh, take a little bit of what he had to say, talk about it. And the Democratic Socialists are in town, too. I wonder if there's going to be a rumble. This is Political <laughs> Rewind. We'll be right back. <laughs> Are you thinking of getting rid of your old car, truck, or RV? GPB's Vehicle Donation Program is here to help. Donating has never been easier. We'll take care of everything, including free pickup of your vehicle. Just go to gpb.org slash cars or call 877-GPB-1-CAR. That's 877-472-1227. And thanks so much. Some people in Paradise, California, are rebuilding after the deadly campfire, but they're getting mixed messages from officials about whether the water is safe to drink. The flip-flopping is what causes me more stress, knowing that one day it's fine, a couple weeks later, oops, it's not. I'm Audie Cornish, The Water Crisis in Paradise, this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. Four till seven this afternoon here on GPB and online at gpbnews.org. We're back on Political Rewind. Jim Galloway, Vice President Pence, is in town. Uh, Eric Erickson had, is uh, staging his uh, resurgence conference this weekend. And we mentioned this on our show earlier in the week that it's ironic in a way because back uh, when the, in 2015, before we had a Republican nominee, uh, Trump... Uh, candidate Trump was disinvited from that gathering because Eric Erickson was so offended by comments he made about Megyn Kelly after that first Republican debate. Now they've kissed and made up. He's supporting Trump and Pence is in town. Pence, Pence was in town and he, uh, he uh, uh, it, was, uh, it was it was a red meat speech. Nothing, nothing uh, terrifically new. He did uh, uh, toss Brian Kemp, who's in the audience, some support. Mm -hmm. On uh, the 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 Georgia's new uh, anti-abortion heartbeat law, uh, and uh, he kind of he portrayed 2020 as a as a, as an existential contest. Let's uh, listen. Robert Jimison was over there for uh, GPB News and captured some of the Mike Pence speech. Let's listen to uh, what one of the things that Pence had to say, just like what Jim Galloway's talking about. Well, frankly, we got a lot more work to do. Got a lot more work to do, and there are challenges that lie ahead. The fact is that all of this progress could be lost with one bad day in November in 2020. I mean, all you have to do is look at that debate that took place this last week. <laughs> you all watch that debate? I mean, it was kind of hard to watch. I mean, those people were standing so far on the left, I thought that stage was going to flip over. So, you know what I think was interesting about the vice president? Two things, uh, Mike Thurman. We, we didn't uh, talk about the, uh, we, we played a bite that kind of goes along with 
the, the Republican talking point right now about the socialist Democrats, and we know that theme is going to be heard throughout the campaign. But there's another interesting thing I thought about. Um, in a longer segment of the speech, Pence laid out what he says are the arguments for why Trump should be reelected. He said the economy is booming. Um, the job rate is up. There's less unemployment. He specifically said that African-American employment is up. Such an interesting contrast to what President Trump does when he goes out on the stump and can't seem to focus on the issues that Republicans would like to say are the accomplishments of the administration. So address both of those, if you would. Well, you just outlined the greatest challenge facing President Trump, which is, of course, President Trump. Uh, he does have some things that he could run on. Uh, the economy is strong or has been. You know, unemployment is low. But that's not what he focuses on. Uh, he attacks uh, women of color in Congress. Uh, he attacks a congressman from Baltimore. There's this ongoing, almost maniacal need to create divisiveness and, and, and racial insensitivity in our country. And I think, it's, well, it might be good for Democrats, but I think it's unfortunate not just for Republicans, but it's unfortunate for our country that our president continues to double down on issues that create an environment where rather than coming together as Americans to face the threat from Russia or South or North Korea, we continue to become immersed in, in this morass of, of, of I don't want to call it, yeah, it's racial hatred. Uh, let me, and I that's know, unfortunate. I know Galloway wants to jump in. Let me ask you one follow-up if I could, and then, and then you, please, Jim. Um, it, the racist tropes are one thing. Uh, this notion that Democrats are socialists is, is something else that I'm going to ask. I'd love to ask Jackie about it in a couple minutes. Mm -hmm. But when a, Mike Pence uh, talks about the Democratic candidates for president moving to the left, being liberal, doesn't call them socialists, but says how liberal they are, uh, he has some. He has some reason, uh, some factual information to back that up, doesn't he? Well, there are candidates who are running for the Democratic nomination or who are liberal or even to the extreme left. But what you're beginning to see, if you look at who the front runner is, who is a very center left candidate, and if you look at where I think ultimately the most Democrats are, they are more moderate and centrist. And I think that is the path to victory. Jim? Uh, one of the people, uh, someone else who was at this gathering that Pence was at, was uh, U.S. Senator Tim Scott of South mm. Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I, I, don't, I, I don't know if, uh, what, he, what he talked about, but his presence was kind of interesting because, uh, because on Thursday, uh, a Representative Will Hurd of Texas yeah announced that he was not going to seek re-election. He was the only African-American Republican in the U.S. House. And with his departure, Tim Scott becomes the only, would become the only African-American Republican in, in Congress, which I think uh, really underlines a serious problem for, the, for, for Republicans. Yeah, and it also uh, raises questions about what the heck is happening in Texas, where oh, you yes. have several yes. oh, okay. uh, 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 mm -hmm. incumbent Republicans who mm -hmm. don't want to run. Jackie, weigh in on all this. I mean, first of all, let me ask you. Democrats, we saw it in the debate the other night, we'll talk about that in a minute, some real liberals on that stage, but yes. socialists? There, there's a, well, when, you, when we talk about giving away this and that free, everything's free, 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 at some point you have to wonder who's going to pay for all that. So, I mean, I do think, I mean, and clearly, I mean, the Democratic Socialists of America are in Atlanta this week, so I think you have to actually talk about it. And quite honestly, I, I know you mentioned this earlier before the show, 
part of the challenge I think we have is that people don't really understand what socialism is, what real socialism is. And so I do think we need to have an educational process in our country to talk about what is socialism, what is real socialism, and what is this kind of progressive, not, but what are we talking about? And I think when we aren't clear about what we talk about, we get confused as a country. But back to President Trump, I actually agree with you. The biggest uh, problem Trump has is, one, if the economy falls, he's in big trouble. That's just a fact. Um, if the economy's strong, I think Trump will win, regardless of the fact that he has to deal with Trump, which is, I agree with you, <laughs> that, that's his biggest, I think his biggest challenge if the economy continues to be yes. strong. What he doesn't do, which is exactly what he should do, which you mentioned, is he should talk about what he has done, which is appoint African-Americans to his cabinet. He should talk about the First Step Act. He should talk about forgiving the HBCUs of, I think, two or three hundred million. It was three hundred million in debt. That's what he should talk about, the things he's actually accomplished, the things he's doing. Instead, again, remember, he's the New York developer, reality TV show <laughs> president who, for some reason, can't control what he says or just tries one thing after another. So I think we have a bit of a challenge, but luckily for Trump, and then I'll, I'll wrap up, is if you look at the, the stage in the last two nights of the Democratic debates, it was a feeding frenzy. I mean, it was sad to watch, quite frankly. And I'm, you know, and I, I'm not a Democrat. I'm not going to vote for any of them. But to, it was, to me, it was kind of sad to watch these Democrats just tear each other apart. It's going to be a nasty primary. Um, quite frankly, I, I would I would be surprised if a moderate does come out of it. I think you'll see a very liberal left candidate who, quite frankly, will not win. Yeah, it reminded me so much of the Democrat, <laughs> of the Republicans <laughs> primary. <laughs> We're with the 20 Republicans up there. But it, it is what it is. It's politics. But I think, to your point, and we do agree, uh, but what we, back to the uh, Democratic candidates, I think it's good for the party to have the debate and the discussion. It really is. And it's no different in terms of progressives or even socialists. Uh, think about Freedom Caucus members. You don't define an entire party by its various component parts. And what we are seeing is a tremendous amount of energy across the Democratic spectrum. And I believe that once a nominee is selected, he or she will have united support, not so much for the nominee, mm -hmm. but in opposition to President Trump. Uh, the downside of what he's doing is he's generating a tremendous amount of energy to oppose him, whoever the nominee is. Most Democrats, including me, I will take any of them oh, in November to try to create a different trajectory for our country. But, you know, but you're right. You know, I mean, this... this 2020 should be a replay of Ronald Reagan versus Walter Mondale. Yes. You know, it, it should, I mean, that's that's the dynamic that should be Explain right what now. you mean by that. Mike Thurman immediately uh, agreed, but yes. what are we saying okay. when we uh, this say was, that? This was the race for Ronald Reagan's re-election. It was uh, 84, and, and uh, Jimmy Carter's vice presidential candidate, Walter uh, Mondale was the was was the was the Democratic nominee. The economy was booming; everything mm -hmm. was going right, and and Ronald Reagan was likable. Yeah, mm -hmm. right. Yep. And right. he won. E he won easily. He won very easily. Well, and he came out with the tear point the morning in America commercial, right? So right. you, you mm -hmm. wake up in America it was and a every, morning in America. It was right. Right. Morning Reagan, in America. It's all good. Right. It was. It was. Mm -hmm. it, was a, it was a morning in America moment mm -hmm. uh, rather than America in carnage. Right. Or well, the you know, nightmare that will not end. And, <laughs> you know, which is what mm -hmm. we're in right now, and it's unfortunate. It, just really it is, is unfortunate. I'm going to tie back to your your um, comment about the, the congressman um, who is retiring from Texas, and and I, I've said this numerous times on your show, Bill. And I'm going to say it again. 
in the hopes that someone might hear me. Um, but the, one of the things that the Republicans are horrible about is they're horrible about going out and recruiting candidates. They're horrible about talking about how, they're horrible about asking people to run, including them, listening to them. That's why I wrote the book. There's lots of information. But we're really bad. We're like, let's just see who happens to pop up and want to run. And quite frankly, I think that's why you see less minorities and fewer women on the Republican side and candidates than you do on the Democratic side, because the Democrats are fantastic about recruiting candidates. Y'all do a great job up and down, I mean, up and down the place, yeah. and Republicans are just terrible. So um, maybe someone will listen and take note and actually begin to recruit people. But until you reach out and actually tell people, I want you in my party, even if you don't agree with me, at least they know I want you in my party, then they won't believe that you want them in the party. Yeah. And Republicans have to do that. And, and what Jack is saying is so true. Look, let, let me come out of the political, political closet mm. today. <laughs> okay. okay. Here we go. Live public TV. <laughs> I have friends who are Republicans. Oh, my gosh. I'm coming out the clock. What can I say, right? They are concerned about the rhetoric. They are concerned about the divisiveness. They are concerned about what appears to be race baiting. That's not who and what and who we are as America. The whole question about the citizenship question, as I thought about it a little bit more, is really about doubling down on that narrative, the us versus the other. And it was just one more opportunity to reinforce that message that you are not a part of us. But the, you know what? I, okay. But Jim Galloway and, and Jackie Kutchman, you both uh, referred to trying to understand what a definition of socialism is as Republicans try to brand Democrats that way. But, I, I, you know, I read, I read so much every morning, I frankly don't remember which publication I read this in. But I, <laughs> I read a quote from a Democratic official uh, who was outraged by that because he said, um, and I'm quoting indirectly, of course, uh, that's absurd we don't want a government takeover of everything. Uh, we're not about controlling the means of production. And I thought, oh my gosh, that is so missing the whole, you know, to take a classic definition of socialism and try to use it as an argument against the Republicans or your Kind of, it, it doesn't make any sense. And the reason I bring that up, uh, Mike, is I watch those debates and I don't see anyone on that stage those two nights who seem to have an answer to, for, to the vision that Democrats are looking for, that Democrats want to put in, that really deals with um, answering the whole question about socialism. Does that make sense, what I just asked? Uh, it does, but there were moderate candidates. Uh, Bennett, uh, who spoke, I thought, very eloquently on moderate issues around health care and other issues. But you have to just acknowledge that you now have a millennial generation of individuals who are Democrats, which, who we love, but they perceive the world in a very different way. No, but, and, but I think if, if I can extend the Ronald Reagan metaphor, I yeah. mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, 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 an opportunity here for Democrats for a, a Ronald Reagan-like figure exactly. who, is, who, who, can, who can channel the optimism yes. and, and, and the, the, the moral, moral rectitude in a, <laughs> in, a, in a positive way. I, I, I would, I'm sorry. No, go right ahead. I would totally agree. But I think if they do that, they have to do it from the moderate standpoint, right? Yeah. The, the traditional democratic moderate standpoint, not the. If you look at socialism, it is the control of means of production. I mean, if right. you know, pull pull up anyone, pull out your Webster right. dictionary and pull it up, right? And I think if you start talking about government control, most of the country is going to say, "No, thank you. The government can't well, do anything that, right anyway." That's my point. Right, that, but, that, but <laughs> so I think there is. So I think there is a a, a, 
apart for that person, but they have to come from the moderate side of the, well, the Democratic Party. Think, you, you're right to, on that point. You can't go from eliminating all private insurance. I mean, come on. That's just not going <laughs> well, to say. But let me say this to Jim Galloway's point. I did have a chance to sit and talk with Joe Biden for an hour when he visited here. And, um, and then I was with him at a small gathering. That is the person he's attempting to be. Mm -hmm. He's attempting to ride above the fray uh, to talk about restoring dignity and respect to the profession of politics. That is exactly the, the, the strategy he's trying to implement. Now, have you, have you endorsed him or do you support no, him? not yet. Okay. You know, uh, I, I, I don't know if Robert Jimison is back from uh, the resurgence conference. If you are, Robert, and listening in the control room, we should post David Brooks' column in the New York Times this morning. He wrote something very interesting that relates to the point you're all making about a, a, a democratic message that is uplifting. He said, mm -hmm. for all her wacky ideas, Marianne Williamson... <clears throat> may have a better idea of how to run against Donald Trump than anybody else running in the party because she talks about just that, lifting us up of, and morally and ethically, renewing the spirit of America in a new way. And I thought that was really an interesting uh, point she made, not that she has a chance to be the Democratic nominee. No, but she had a couple good, good, yeah. good paragraphs yeah. Uh, yeah, in that she debate. Did. Mm -hmm. She did. She did. It was fascinating. And I, okay, I'm, I'm going I'm to throw a twist to this, and I'm going to go out on a limb, which many Republicans probably won't like. You but have Democratic friends, too? Oh, of course I do. <laughs> I do have Democratic <laughs> friends. <laughs> I thought you knew that, Jim. So I, I didn't know that was news. So I'll, I'll go on to the other news. But yes, I have Democratic friends. Um, but actually, that's part. it's interesting you say that. 55% of Republicans and 65% of Democrats do not have friends in the opposite party. Yeah, that's that's, a, that's a statistical fact, and that's part of what I talk about in my book, and that's part of the problem we have as a country. Repeat that percentage again. 65% of Democrats and 55% of Republicans do not have friends in the opposite party. So imagine if, I wasn't going to go on this tangent, but thank you, Jim. Imagine if you live in New York and you were raised in the Democratic Party and you have no Republican friends and you watch MSNBC. And then imagine if you were born in Alabama, have all Republican friends, watch Fox News. Can you imagine those people would automatically hate the other? Yeah, absolutely. That's really interesting. And, and yeah, and 20 years ago, if you walked into a room and you found out about parties, only 20% would automatically hate hate without knowing them, right? Now it's 50%. So we really have created this incredibly polarized environment. But what I was going to say, which I think is so interesting, is but that's a thesis to a great it, book. That's, thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm going to send you a copy. No, right. I'm going to send you a copy. I love it. But I mean, not only does the Democratic Party need someone, quite frankly, who is uplifting and talks about optimism and what we can do together, quite frankly, I would say the Republican Party needs the same. Well, I mean, certainly the Republican <laughs> Party, I mean, Republicans starting with the White House, uh, you mentioned it, uh, Mike, uh, demonized the uh, uh, Democrats uh, in extraordinary ways. And beyond that, demonized uh, uh, people of color. And, you know, it, it, where does it start, you know? Well, and what we, true, but where can we end it? That's right. And that's what we really need to focus on now. And it didn't just start with Trump, by the way. Let's not put this on Trump. This is an evolution of some 30 or 40 years. Right. I got to get, I want to move on just for, for, before we get to our final break and ask you a quick question. And then you get welcome to weigh in uh, sort of briefly. What you saw on the stage Thursday night when Kamala Harris mm -hmm. uh, and Cory Booker uh, and a few of the other more marginal candidates all went after Joe Biden because he was Barack Obama's vice president, attacking the Affordable Care Act, attacking uh, the Obama policies on uh, 
on, on sending undocumented immigrants back to Mexico. Where, you know, forget about how breathtakingly strange that was to people who watch, uh, watch the debates and said, why are they attacking the most popular Democrat in the country? How is that going to play with African-American voters in states like South Carolina? And when the primary gets to Georgia, how is it Kamala Harris? How are they going to handle what they, what they did to the Obama legacy uh, on that stage? Well, sitting here to... Today, I can only speak for one African-American voter. <laughs> I was disgusted by it. Mm-hmm. I did not like it. It was Not only was it just bad politics, uh, even with Trump being Trump, very rarely is there a Republican who will criticize him, much less a nominee in the party. It was breathtaking. It, was just, it made yes. no sense whatsoever. And I, I, talked, to, I, I, I talked to Calvin Smyrie. The next morning, uh, mm-hmm. a state representative out of out of Columbus, he was there, and he's a he's a he's a friend of Biden's, and uh, he said basically what what this was was uh, uh, Joe Biden has connected himself so closely to to Barack Obama that and they you know the people on that stage couldn't pry pry them apart. So in order to sep- make that separation, you have to go after Obama. But but Jackie. When you come to a state with a large African-American Democratic population like South Carolina for their primary, uh, you've accomplished two things if you're uh, one of those uh, critics. You have uh, angered uh, black voters who, who uh, revere Barack Obama, and you've given Joe Biden the chance to put himself even, to cement even more firmly his relationship with a popular president. Oh, I mean, I totally agree. I, mean, I, th- I think it was very, it was not very smart of them to do. It wasn't, clearly was not kind of them to do. I don't know why they did it. I mean, the only thing I can think of is that, like, again, it was like a feeding frenzy, yeah. and they couldn't help but attack and attack and attack, and it, quite frankly, I had to turn it off, because it was, hor- it was quite frankly horrible right. to watch. All right. It's uh, almost assured the fact that either Michelle and or President Obama will assert themselves in this race at right. mm-hmm. time. We'll watch that. Um, <laughs> all right, we're going to come back to uh, local politics in a couple of minutes, but first we're going to take this break. This is Political Rewind. <clears throat> Let's... Downton Abbey is coming to a movie theater near you, and right now GPB has your opportunity to see the new feature film before anyone else. Join us on Sunday, September 15th in Atlanta for an advanced screening and VIP reception. Tickets are limited, so make sure we hear from you now. Go to gpb.org slash Downton Tickets to find out more and reserve your seat. That's gpb.org slash Downton Tickets. Don't miss out on this opportunity to support GPB and see Downton Abbey on the big screen. Downton Abbey is coming to a movie theater near you, and right now GPB has your opportunity to see the new feature film before anyone else. Join us on Sunday, September 15th in Atlanta for an advanced screening and VIP reception. Tickets are limited, so make sure we hear from you now. Go to gpb.org slash Downton Tickets to find out more and reserve your seat. That's gpb.org slash Downton Tickets. Don't miss out on this opportunity to support GPB and see Downton Welcome back to Political Rewind. If you've been listening to the show uh, lately, you know that we're heading to Augusta. Uh, pretty soon to do our show in front of a live audience at the Jesse Norman School of the Arts. Monday, August 12th, we'll do the show at 7 o'clock that night, and we would love to have you join us. I've said several times now, it's our first trip to Augusta, and so we want to meet as many of you as we can, give you a chance to weigh in on the issues that matter to you. Jim Galloway's coming out with me, which I'm very happy about. Um, So just go to the Political Rewind page, politicalrewind.org. 
click on the link to register for your free tickets and we'll see you in Augusta. It's going to be fun. It'll be a blast. Jim, uh, this week, a angry crowd uh, turned out for a community meeting in Cobb County. People who are worried their chances of getting cancer are dramatically higher because of a medical sterilization plant, Sterogenics, which is essentially at Sandy Springs, Atlanta border, right? Uh, well, it's in, in the Smyrna area, uh, right. down in South, South Cobb. Uh, Smyrna, that's right. Uh, yeah, Thank right. you. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And uh, the, the background on this is on July 19th, uh, some friends of ours, you know, Andy Miller over at uh, Georgia Health News and, and partner with someone from WebMD, and they and they they published a report that said last year in 2018, uh, the EPA uh, uh, noted that there were three census tract hotspots for cancer, and two of them were in on the on the Cobb Fulton border, and one was in Covington, and both were quote uh, both were were connected to the rise of ethylene oxide, which was a material used in two plants. Uh, one in one in one near Smyrna, one in Covington, that uh, sterilized medical uh, equipment through the use of that gas, uh, and uh, the EPA in 2016, I think they 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 upped it from a a cancer linked chemical to a cancer causing chemical. Uh, Andy uh, and his partner on this story uh, contrasted how government has not responded in in our communities to Willowbrook, Illinois, where they had a, a plant. I think it was a sterogenics mm -hmm. plant, uh, where as soon as EPA uh, found uh, a potential link, a, a higher risk of cancers mm -hmm. because of this chemical, uh, they shut the plant down. Officials in the state got so angry, uh, were so concerned about it, that the plant was shut down. One of the reasons for the anger meeting the other night is we've noticed that very little has been done here. EPA did not put out any kind of public notice about this. They knew about it. They knew about it. The state uh, environmental protection division also knew about it. Also, did not make any public notice. We did not. We no one knew about this until mid July. So, Jackie, I, I want to turn to you on this because if if the maps that I've seen are correct, uh, it is conceivable that you happen to live in a neighborhood that could be affected by the emissions from this plant. No, I, you're right. I'm not far from that area at all. So, and I haven't looked at the map. I'll have to do that. But I want to first of all um, commend the AJC. I've done it a couple of times on this show. That one of the things you're really good at is investigative reporting and turning things out and making sure they're public. Um, along with this, along with the the, the tax commissioner story this past week, which I appreciate since he collects our taxes. Um, but I think it is really important. I think I'm really glad to see that the citizens are out. It's a bipartisan effort to make sure that the information's out, that, that, that the proper steps are taken. And to me, that's really where all the action should take place, is we need this community bipartisanship to work together to make sure our communities are as safe as they can be. So I'm looking forward to see what happens. But I appreciate your coverage and the AJC's coverage on this. The governor took his time in speaking out about this, Jim. Yeah, yeah. What, well, what, uh, the, and this kind of goes to the Sunday column that, that I've got that, yep. that's, that's already posted. That, uh, that really what you have, you had this kind of bipartisan crisis management team uh, 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 form in Cobb at, at a very low level. I mean, there was uh, uh, County Commissioner Bob Ott, uh, State Representative Eric uh, Allen and State Senator uh, Jen Jordan all kind of overlapped and in, in, in represented that same same system uh, that 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 those, that same community, and they all got together 
and they started they started mapping things out and they put they put on this Tuesday gathering over at Campbell Middle School the fire marshal had to be called because there were too many people they got turned away and that's how I, I that's that's when people really started paying attention uh, the governor on Thursday about two weeks after this the the first report uh, hit uh, made his first public uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, acknowledgement of the situation. But now we know that EPD, which is what our version, the state version, the Environmental Protection Division, has been mobilized to uh, look into this to see what they may or may not want to do. Right, right. But the initiative has come at the local level. Right. Because because uh, at that Tuesday meeting, it was it was really kind of interesting to watch. You had the city of Smyrna volunteer to to to. Uh, help fund a an independent uh, testing of the atmosphere, the local atmosphere. Then you had you had uh, Lucy uh, Lisa Cupid, the Democratic uh, commissioner in Cobb County, who's going to run uh, for chairman. She stepped up and said, "Cobb ought to do the same thing." Yeah. The yeah. next day, Mike Boyce, the Republican <laughs> incumbent said, yeah, let's do it. That's you know, Mike, what's interesting about this is uh, Galloway's Sunday column talks about how mm -hmm. interesting it is to have bipartisan uh, cooperation on this. But, you know, we're living in times when it seems to me things, have got, if they're not happening at the federal level because of paralysis or because of uh, an administration that uh, is uh, uh, increasingly uh, passing executive or issuing executive orders that give a lot of freedom to businesses and the like, Things have to happen at the local level these days. Well, yes, two things. First, great reporting, Jim. I mean, it's been phenomenal. And you're absolutely right, Bill. I think Americans are just getting fed up with it. And we have to address the problems that we face. And oftentimes these problems transcend race and geography and politics. What's unique about the situation here in Cobb is that typically these and there's this whole school of thought around environmental racism that typically is a low-income community being impacted, that these plants either were built near or around low-income individuals. What's unique in Cobb is that some of the upper crust in Cobb and North Fulton are being potentially impacted. The outtake, though, is that this has the potential to create a new model as to how we address these issues wherever they might manifest mm -hmm. themselves, whether it's in upper or low-income communities, it's a template that if and when it becomes successful, it can be transferred and migrated to other mm -hmm. parts of our state and even our mm -hmm. country. So the potential good will emanate far beyond uh, the neighborhoods that might be affected. By the way, uh, Metro. Jackie, I'll give it to you, but uh, uh, Tom Faust wanted to let me know that the reporter from WebMD you worked with Andy Miller is named Brenda Goodman, so we give her a shout oh, out. Oh, thank you. Go ahead. Thank you for that. Um, now, I was going to say thank you. You basically are giving a, a commercial for my new book, because what I talk about, <laughs> I can't tell you how much I appreciate that. Our Broken America. I know, I had no idea. Thank you, thank you. You, you are going to, you're going to be my four. That's it. But my whole point is, in this, in this book, is that we really have to come together at local problems, and we have to solve things at local community level, and then actually, I talk about making a blueprint so others can use it. So the, it's like you read the book. Uh, Jim, the problem with that is that in this case, local officials got together to identify the problem. 
but they can't solve it without the intervention of higher officials in the state. No, and 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 Governor <laughs> Kemp has now signaled signaled that he's yes. that he's paying attention. Right, right. But 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 what they what 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 this group did was they they helped and encouraged the movement the 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 the, the organization of local citizens that 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 uh, that created a, a the, the momentum yeah. that could not be ignored. Yeah, you. Uh, we should point out when when Mike uh, talks about the mix of lower and upper income households that might be affected by this. Uh, the reporting that I saw suggests that the governor's mansion could it, very it, well be within the zone right. of uh, toxicity. Home, home Depot headquarters with yeah. ten thousand employees, yeah. Yeah. possibly SunTrust Park. Um, and the other plant, uh, th not the same company, a different company that also does medical sterilization is in Covington. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we're going to probably be looking to see in the weeks ahead, there'll be reporting on what they're doing out that way. And Covington is not far from your territory. Oh, absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And these things, you know, the environment transcends and, you know, we all impacted by it. We, we have our own challenges in DeKalb County. Uh, right now, we're faced with the uh, contamination or at least reducing emissions or releasing uh, uh, toxic materials into the South River. Yeah. Uh, but the South River impacts Fulton, Clayton, mm -hmm. DeKalb, uh, Rockdale, all the way to Jackson. And one of the things we need to do is work across county lines to make sure that uh, we have a safe and clean environment. Mm -hmm. And to your point, the environment, you know, and we always kind of defaulted to the environmentalists. But it's not just the environmental, it's not just the people on the left that can benefit by us being better stewards of our natural resources. I, I totally agree. I've been involved for decades with Trust for Public Land, which has worked to save the Chattahoochee, um, the headwaters all the way down through Atlanta. Now, we're now working all the way down um, to Columbus and beyond. But it's really important. I mean, regardless of your political beliefs, I mean, we live on this earth. It's earth that I believe that God gave us, and we need to be good stewards of it. Uh, and that means making sure we take care of it. Jim, we're not going to have a lot of time with this, but uh, we might as well bring it up while we're talking about the environment. Uh, we uh, are also dealing with a situation in which you suddenly have one of the most uh, highly respected uh, consultants, pollsters, mm -hmm. uh, focus group masters, Frank Luntz, who a number of years back told Republicans, don't pay any attention to global warming. It's not an issue. Climate change is not an issue for you. He's suddenly saying, Republicans, you better pay attention because it's real. That right. is a sea change. Yeah. And not to be a punning. Uh, on no, that. no. He, uh, he, appeared, uh, <laughs> uh, he, he appeared at a, a special Senate Democratic hearing with two other two younger republicans because that's where the that's where the that's where the the interest is coming from it's from from uh, from the from younger Republi republicans not older republicans what's interesting of course is that frank Luntz worked with this guy named <laughs> newt gingrich oh that's right oh, contract, contract with america, with america. Right. oh my Should, gosh that's right it was Luntz who came up Luntz, with yeah, that was with part of Luntz's, yeah, yeah. He, yeah. And he yep. created the vocabulary yep. that that that, yeah. that that newt gingrich used yep. and now he's advising senate democrats on what kind of vocabulary they need to sell Republicans on climate change. Um, but he's taught, but Republicans are being told they better pay attention to. Oh, yes, yes. Oh, yeah. I was at the news conference on the, at the front lawn of the Capitol, Jackie Cushman, when your dad rolled out mm -hmm. the uh, contract with America and it, wow. it won them a full sweep of Congress and your dad became speaker. I know it's still amazing to me that he was able to do that and get all of those different people who are running for office to actually stand there with him yeah. and agree to do it yeah. and then transfer through and do it. But I mean, Frank Luntz is right. And like, again, I'm a big 
Um, you know, I'm a big environmentalist in terms of we need to be a good steward. And regardless of whether or not I think his actual message is, regardless of whether or not it's actually happening, we need to be good stewards of our, of our planet and take care of it. All right. Thank you, Jackie Cushman. You get the last word on today's show. We're out of time. Uh, Jim Galloway, you'll back, be back with me at 2 o'clock on Monday, I hope. Absolutely. Maybe we'll talk more about this uh, climate change stuff right. that Luntz was talking about. Uh, Jackie Cushman, uh, one of the most, uh, you're always smart. You're talking about your book, one of the most shameless performances you have ever <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we will talk about your book more when it's published on September 17th. Uh, you know, it's always a pleasure to have you, Mike Thurman, especially after your road cruise finally got rid of the big plate in the middle of a road I travel on and we paved it. Thank you for that, uh, Mr. Thurman. <laughs> We're out of time. I'm Bill Nygut. We'll see you again Monday at 2 for another Political Rewind.